what we hope to demonstrate, as you have it there in the first quote by uh, Brother Thomas, is that the classes are an example of how brethren who lived many years ago and who are the foundation of the fellowship that we enjoy today, reasoned out of the scriptures. So my intent is not for it to be applied personally to myself, but how our community, the foundation of our community, holding the truth that we've been blessed with, has reasoned out of the scriptures throughout the ages. And it goes back to our very novitiate, our beginning as a community in the truth. And we hope to bring this all the way to current time where this has a little bit of application to myself because I came out of the world and, and I'll reference that just briefly, not that the story's of any interest, um, but bringing it up uh, to this current time. Brother Thomas in Eureka Volume 4 says, as we know, that Jewish history is not like any other history. It's not like American history, English history. It is not about Russia. The things that happened to Israel, narrated in their history, happened to them for types. Of course, you'll read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. We've got it there on the screen for you. And in that place, he even speaks of the children of Israel being baptized into Moses, when baptism was not even instituted yet. Then the food and the drink that they were provided, he calls spiritual meat and spiritual drink, and refers it to Christ. And then he says all these things were done for their examples, or types, or figures as it has in the margin in both those cases if you've got an oxford or cambridge version of the bible and brother thomas says that typical history is the past representative of the future so now the whole old testament is about the nation of israel predominantly the new as well but certainly the old testament so this reference in the new testament in first corinthians 10 is telling us that when we read the scriptures, we're to read it literally, of course, but also understand its typical application. And that is the statement from Brother Thomas from Eureka, Volume 4. And we'll quote a lot of brethren who lived in ages past, which was the reason for our uh, initial comments. Sorry, I'm trying to advance the screen. Oh, there we go. I think I might just tap it. Um, and so we use this quote as well by Brother Thomas. Treat the New Testament as a commentary of the old. Now, we'll also just insert this. I don't know what your thinking is on Brother Thomas. Um, perhaps some people have negated his impact and his understanding of the truth, and you may have been tainted in your idea of that. Please be patient as we go through a lot of the reasoning of brethren in this regard. We read in Luke 24, in treating the New Testament as a commentary or an interpretation of the old, Christ has been resurrected. He appears to do two disciples on the way of Emmaus. And beginning, he joins himself unto them. And beginning in Moses and all the prophets, he expounded all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. I skipped some verses there. We'll get back to that. And they said, and this is the intent of the studies, brothers and sisters, did not our heart burn within us? while he talked with us by the way, and why he opened, and that's the word expounded unto us, the scriptures. It's been rightly said, the truth does not to be, need to be explained. It needs to be expounded. That's the intent, brothers and sisters. I don't know of any more way to do it 
to set the heart on fire than to understand. Remember the men and their understanding was so strong that when Christ was in their presence performing miracles, they denied him even as he was being sacrificed. All of them, even Peter. Yet when their understanding was opened after his resurrection, which was the key to understanding the law, prophets, and Psalms, they're willing to die for the truth. Suffer indignity, be punished, put in prison, and so forth. And so in Elpis Israel, Brother Thomas says this, the name of Jesus Christ comprehends everything that is confirms or affirmable of him. It's a summary of his character as the prophet, sacrifice, priest, and king. To understand his name, we have to know what is testified of him in the law, prophets, and psalms, and the apostles. So we have to be able to make understanding and application of the Old Testament scriptures, brothers and sisters. We have to. So the context that Brother Dan read for us in Acts 17 refers to, as you have it there, and I believe it's an enacted symbolism, where he enters into a Jewish synagogue, and we know that was always his form when there was a synagogue, but he enters into the law, so to speak, where the Jews held firm, and he opened unto them the doctrine of the gospel as it pertained to Christ. So the purpose of these studies, brothers and sisters, is to demonstrate that Bible history, we have the ability in our hands, like the apostle, to unlock all the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. It is revealed by types and parables and signs and shadows, which was the method of reasoning. And here's where I'll make quick reference to it. My brother Thomas, Carter, Roberts, brother Barling, Mansfield, Brother C.C. Walker, when I came into the truth, I was baptized in 1987 from the world, no knowledge at all. We didn't have these platforms. There weren't digital platforms. There weren't click and play classes. You had to read books. And these were the books largely in publication that we had. I was baptized in Texas, Houston, Texas at the time. And this was the pattern I saw over and over and over again. I saw it from the Pioneer Brethren from the 1800s all the way down to our time, and who died just a little bit before I was baptized was Brother H.P. Mansfield, and then we had expositors. And they all reasoned the same way. And that was the reason that we just had demonstrated by Paul in Acts chapter 17. So that brothers and sisters, what we believe is not just based on doctrinal facts. We do believe the doctrinal facts, but it's the principles that are associated with those facts. Baptism means nothing. That is the actual influence of the water. And when we go down into it, Romans 6 and all the other scriptures mean it's the principle behind that. It's the same for the bread and wine. It's not the Catholic doctrine of, of turning literally into the flesh and blood of Christ. It's what those emblems mean. And I do believe, and these are just a few references you have it in 2 Timothy and Deuteronomy chapter 4, it absolutely is the responsibility of brethren to show the next generation at least this form of exposition. It was passed down from all these brethren, and it was passed down to myself coming in from the world, from the senior most member of our meeting at the time. And you'll notice that in the scriptures that a lot of times there's an older brother, and he's as close as association as a younger brother. 
Elijah, Elisha, Peter, John, Moses, Joshua, Paul, Timothy, you find that pattern everywhere in scripture. And the brethren have always been my uh, closest mentors, closest friends in the truth, have always been older than me because they've been able to teach me something. And it's been very, very necessary. So we read this. Brother Thomas in 1847 says the scriptural method of imparting knowledge. Remember, we're talking about doctrine and the principles associated with that. Because Brother Thomas says the scriptural method of imparting knowledge is not only the best, it is unquestionably the most interesting. It doesn't deliver its oracles after the cut and dried fashion of the creed. You ever read the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith? Most boring read you'll ever find. It's necessary. And I embrace all the doctrines in the Statement of Faith. It's the most bo- that is not how God has revealed his truth. He's done it, as Brother Thomas says, in narratives of creation, domestic troubles, sin, murder, violence, apostasy, physical convulsions, loves, lawful and forbidden, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, invasions, massacres, sieges, sacks of towns, religion, politics, superstition, foundation, overthrows of kingdoms, states and empires, family history and their minutest details. How do you like when the readings land on that, that chronology? But it's there for a reason, brothers and sisters. It's a very important reason why it's there. God willing, in due time, we'll give some attention to that. Personal adventure, personalities, accusations, vindications of character. Hence, while a creed, like our statement of faith, is the driest and most repulsive form of black art, that means ink on a page, the Bible is the most interesting and readable book in the world. And notice what he says. It's intelligible in all of its doctrines. But the Bible reveals them in a way to make it incumbent upon a reason, the reader to reason them out. Hence, the deep things of God are addressed to faith, not implicit, but resulting from a devout examination of the wonderful details of this most extraordinary of all books. And I cite one example to that, and we could add dozens, the 7,000-year plan. It is based on a consistent, you cannot possibly ignore principle that is everywhere embedded in the word. And there is not a single scriptural reference that actually says a 7,000 year plan. But it is everywhere. There are seven epistles, seven ecclesias, seven days of creation, on and on and on. Seven epistles to seven different ecclesias. It's, it's just enormous. So we embrace that based on principle. So we return to Luke 24, where we read this. Beginning in Moses and all the prophets, he expounded in them all the scriptures concerning himself. And he said, these are the words that I spake unto you while I was yet with you. That's important. Because he taught by parables. So he was speaking of himself in the parabolic language and the things of the kingdom. And he said that all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of prophets. I'm sorry, law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And that he opened again, he expounded their understanding that they might understand scriptures. That's what set their heart on fire. We have it again. Paul, he went in unto the synagogue, representing the fulfillment of the law and prophets, I believe, three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Again, the word expounding or opening and alleging Christ needed to suffer 
than to rise again from the dead. And that this same Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. They only had the Old Testament scriptures, brothers and sisters. Acts 28. Now remember, it's no longer Paul going out, traveling by ship, visiting Ecclesias. All of the inspired epistles and whatnot, all the things that we have today are finished. Now, brethren, come into his lodging for a period of two full years. That is significant to us. And he expounds to them that come into him and testifies of the kingdom of God, persuading, here it is again, all of those things concerning the kingdom and Jesus out of the law and the prophets during the period of life from morning till evening. So the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ is embedded in the Old Testament scriptures. So we know what we're looking for when we read the Old Testament scriptures. This is all these brethren had. Apollos, and remember, he only knew the baptism of John until Aquila and Priscilla expounded more rightly unto him. He mightily convinced the Jews, publicly showing from the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Now here's a more contemporary work in the expositor, at least contemporary to my age somewhat. The Old Testament scriptures were the only inspired writings then available. It proves the entire redemptive work of the Lord is contained within its pages in precept, parable, allegory, type, and shadow. So we need to be looking for that, I believe. We need to be reading that and plumbing into that when we search the scriptures. Christ said it to the Jews. Search the scriptures. They are they which testify of me. I don't accuse you. Moses accuses you. He wrote of me. If you would have believed Moses, you would have known he was speaking of me. And you would have known that when I came, you were to be expecting it. Romans chapter 15. Whatsoever things were written aforetime or were any written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. That word learning, you've got it on the screen before you. Dominantly is translated doctrine. That's exactly what Brother Thomas is saying. It's not implicitly revealed, directly revealed. The doctrine is revealed in all those narratives that we have throughout the pages of the scripture. It's not a statement of faith like we have. And again, I'm going to emphasize, I absolutely endorse our statement of faith. That isn't my point. So please don't misquote me. So the Old Testament is not history alone. It is doctrine. It's expressed in events that were prophetic shadows, types, and allegories of a grander kingdom and a savior that would come. But that is what the Old Testament scriptures are. And to a large part, the New Testament will get into that God willing down the line. So the death and resurrection, this is all we will say very quickly on this. You will notice that when it says their heart was set on fire and their eyes were open, it happened when Christ stopped, although he could have gone further, and he enters into the house with them. And we all know what those principles embrace. He abides with them when the day is far spent, and it's when he breaks bread that their eyes are open. And they knew it was him, and he vanished out of their sight when he broke bread. And God willing, we'll get into this, our next class, which will be, be why the scriptures in this platform reveal and conceal. It was the death of Christ that was the key to unlock the scriptures. 
And I've got another page on this. All the yellow screens, I'll just skip over. These notes will be sent to you and you can study them on your own for time's sake. So yeah, Phanerosis, Brother Thomas says this. The Christ idea was in the world before Moses lived. Adam and Eve received the first promise of his appearing. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, predicted his coming with ten thousands of saints. By the way, we do not have any words of Enoch recorded in the Bible. It's the fact that he was the seventh from Adam that he prophesied of the Lord's coming. We don't have an exposition of Enoch given. It's the fact that he was the seventh from Adam. That principle testified of the Lord's coming. Abraham saw his day and was glad. Moses was caused by Yahweh to put them on record and to commit the writings to the custody of the Hebrew nation. After him, the Christ idea represented by Joshua, leading the people into the Holy Land. Dramatized in the history of David, Solomon, the Mosaic doctrine concerning Christ, amplified by Solomon, the great prophet, David and Solomon, kings of Israel, the prophets, we have to study Moses and the prophets or we can know nothing. As we ought to know concerning the wonderful one, it is impossible to know God apart from the Christ doctrine of Moses and the prophets. For the knowledge of Christ is the knowledge of God manifestation to man. Now I realize, brethren, we're dealing with a lot of general principles right now. God willing, in due course, we will specifically address the things on your screen. The prophets, Joshua, Moses, Abraham, the life of David and Solomon. And this is to bring it to a little more modern time. This, brothers and sisters, and we'll go through this very quickly, the creation account. For the most part, and again, my apologies. Can everyone kind of see the text of those pages in front of you? This, for you young people, this is back when it was put on a typewriter. Type, you don't even know what that means anymore. A typewriter. <laughs> this is a brother. He was a senior most member in our meeting, baptized in 1928. And if you have a Bible dictionary, these two uh, inserts are posted at the front of it. This, by the way, he gave to my wife. Um, she, like I, came out of the world um, and was baptized with no knowledge of the truth came to a knowledge of the truth and was baptized. She gave my wife away at our wedding. So he was baptized in 1928. This gives you a general idea. When we were married in 1989, he would have been well into his 70s. And um, he gave my wife away at our wedding. His, her father had deceased. These were the notes in how he taught the truth. So here's the literal creation on your left side where he directly applies the symbolic aspect of those things, then corresponds them on the right side, right, right out of the inserts from his Bible, the seven days of the creation week. Now, if these are tough to understand, that's fine. We're going to go through them. And he, so when you move from Brother Thomas to Brother Roberts to Brother Carter, uh, Brother C.C. Walker, Brother Barling, and brethren like that, a lot of them from your country, if you're in the U.K., down to Brother Mansfield, to our current time, 
to Brother Howard Phillips in Texas, baptized in 1928. This now moves it down to how I personally was influenced by the truth. And this is how Grandpa Howard is what he used to call him. This is how he reasoned out of the scriptures. This is how he taught us to reason. These are his personal notes. So when you go to this creation account, you find this very, very simple. Here's chapter one, verse one and chapter two, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So you have a very precise, detailed, chronological order of the seven days that are given to this process for the heavens and the earth. It is by no mistake that we read this in 2 Peter that takes up the issue of the creation, by the way. <clears throat> Again, God willing, we can get into this in a verse-by-verse -verse study a little bit later. Where he says, we talked about the 7,000-year plan, one day is with the Lord is a 1,000 years as one day. The Psalms also quote this. And then he says, we look for a new, same language, new heavens and new earth well in, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Well, we know this was spoiled by the sin of Adam and Eve. And then we read this in Isaiah 65. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And I'm reading the bold part. Behold, I create Jerusalem. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. So that is now the subject matter of the new heavens and the new earth. We're just using the Bible as its own dictionary, using the notes as Brother Howard Phillips provided for us. Again, baptized in the 1920s. And this is what we find. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first one has passed away. There's no more sea. Remember how the first creative act began. There's no more sea. What is it that he saw of this new heavens? He saw Jerusalem. Again, the subject matter. Now look at the upper right of your Bible. The upper right of your Bible. This is a literal picture from the Cambridge Bible. I have the Oxford King James Version, which has the same margin, marginal references, but this one is from my daughter's Bible. I asked her to shoot this, a picture of it, and send it to me because she happens to have the Cambridge print. And this is the important thing, brothers and sisters. Christadelphians did not put this translation out. It's intended to be a literal translation. translation. Those that translated it said, well, here's where it's referred to. So let's see if we can make some sense of this. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Well, you can see what Brother Howard has there. He has the sea represents wicked people. He notes just down the slide, I've enlarged him a little bit, Jeremiah 4, 23, where it's quoting. Notice what it's quoting, brothers and sisters. The subject matter of the new heavens and the new earth is creating and renewing under the last Adam, Jerusalem. <clears throat> but the between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and when it is finalized in Genesis 2, chapter 1, is a process. And the first thing we read is that the earth is without form and void. This is quoted directly for the Jewish people in Jeremiah 4.23. 
the margin of your Bible says it is. But Brother Dan opened his prayer by talking about, we hope for the establishment of the kingdom. And he addressed Yahweh as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because we don't believe that we're going to heaven when we die, brothers and sisters. We believe in the covenants of promise. We know that the covenants pertain to the earth. And we know it's about a kingdom to come. I've never met Brother Dan before. He can vouch for that. We speak scriptural language. It means something to us, brothers and sisters, because we do have a key to unlock all the scriptures. My people, Israel, are foolish and assodish children. They have no understanding. Behold, I beheld the earth, and lo, notice this, it was without form and void, and the heavens had no light. What is the very next verse in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3? Let there be light. Now, I put up on the screen noting this all comes down to reasoning out of the scriptures led up to my current time and how I learned how to reason out of the scriptures by Brother Howard Phillips. And then my daughter sent me a screenshot of the, the margin of her Bible. And it said that this is quoted directly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And it is. And when you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, you'll find this creation of the heavens and the earth. And it's talking about God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts, gives light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. And what an enlightenment it will be to the children of Israel when that man appears upon the scene. And he is called the S-U-N, not the S-O-N, the son of righteousness in Malachi. And remember, and again, this is out of the margin. My Bible has the same of the one that I posted on the screen that came from my daughter's Bible. One is in Oxford, the other is in Cambridge. And it said, behold, look over here in Colossians chapter one. And look what it says. It says that Christ was the image, not Yahweh himself. He was the image of God and the firstborn of a creation. Well, we're looking at it here in the Genesis record. And by him were all things created in heaven and earth. And he's talking about the powers and the principalities and the thrones. It's a new ruling class. Okay, keep that in mind. So what does he do? He separates now a firmament of this ruling class. That's the context of Colossians chapter 1. Where the margin says, the reference goes. It's the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. And Daniel says that those that are righteous will awake to everlasting life and will shine forth as the brightness of the firmament. That's why Brother Howard Phillips had in his insert notes, the heavens represent the ruling powers. And he gives all those references for it. And that, by the way, is where the Bible dictionary came from. I just tried to build on that. My wife and I actually... I did A through M. She did N through the, the, that's pathetic. Z. Yeah, that would be the last. <laughs> Z, X, Y, Z. Yeah, Z. <laughs> okay, she did N through Z. That's scary. Who's teaching who? So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says what? It talks about those that sleep 
and those that are alive and remain and what happens. They'll be called up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's a status. It's not literal clouds. It's a status. It's a firmament that's been set above the waters that are upon the face of the earth. And look what it says. After this is done, notice this remarkable language, brothers and sisters. And you and I know this. Again, the sea represents wicked people and nations. They're gathered together in one place and the dry land appeared. That's exactly, not vaguely, it's exactly the language for Armageddon. He will gather them together into a place called Armageddon. I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling, and I will gather together all nations against it. And there's Zephaniah 3, Joel 3, and it goes on and on and on. You know, all the references talk about the gathering of the waters, not the firmament, the wicked nations, so that the dry land will appear. What happened in the salvation of Israel? When they came out of Egypt, and when Joshua brought them into the land, it says they passed over on, I'm quoting, dry land. It will be the salvation of Israel. This congealing of the wicked nations upon them, that is after this firmament has been separated, after the light has been established and he's establishing the kingdoms, that is what's going to happen. The nations will be gathered against Israel and they ultimately will be saved in that process. And so we find ultimately, and of course we skipped a lot of days in the process, we don't have time, the seventh day. And where is that quoted? Any marginal reference is going to tell you that he rested from all his works that he did and he sanctified it and he blessed the seventh day. Your margin will say the exact same thing that mine does. See Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4. Here's the remarkable thing about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4. Remember how Brother Dan opened his prayer and what he said we all desire for. He's talking about Israel, our opening screen, was 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All the things that happened to Israel were types. Talking about how they failed through unbelief in chapter 3, <clears throat> the apostle goes into Hebrews chapter 4 and says, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. But he was talking about entering the land. So the apostle, remember, the New Testament is a commentary of the old. He's just told us that the Sabbath rest is to be connected with the inheritance of the land. He says, because unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. It is the same gospel in the Old and New Testaments. The desire for Abraham and all his seed and the nation of Israel is the exact same desire for brethren in Christ today. For God spake in a certain place of the seventh day after this manner, saying, God did rest from, this, from all his works. And then he quotes Joshua, who of all the names in the Bible you could have given the Lord Jesus Christ, God named him Joshua, the very name of the man who took up the mosaic that failed to bring the children into the, 
land of Israel, and he didn't pass through the Red Sea again. He passed through the Jordan River where Christ himself was baptized. But if Jesus, in your margin, will tell you it's referring to Joshua, had actually given them a permanent rest, he wouldn't have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest that is future for the people of God. All of this, brothers and sisters, right out of the notes supplied by a brother when I came from complete darkness in the world, raised in the Lutheran church, which means I had no knowledge of the Bible. I didn't. You know, it's a country club. It's just a, it's a, just a social thing. You know nothing about the Bible. So I was working from scratch. This is how you reason out the scriptures. And again, as I said, we didn't have the platforms that we have, even the electronic platforms, to get things like we, we had books on the shelf. And in the meeting that would have been in Houston, Texas, that I was a part of, we had very limited books. We had the pioneer books. We had the, the, the books from Brother Mansfield. We had brethren like that, Brother John Carter and C.C. Walker and Brother Barling. That's where I got a hold of all those books. And I read them. And this constant pattern that Brother Howard Phillips taught us was the pattern that brethren reasoned in those days. In my generation, I've said this to many brethren that are younger than me. So I'm trying to find my mouse because I'm not advancing. My generation seemed to lay off that type of reasoning. By the way, I'm 56. I'm in my mid-50s, so that will tell you about the time period. We seemed to lay off that reasoning a, a, a good bit during that period of time. So I was in my early 20s when I was baptized. So here's some phanerosis. Moses wrote not only the literal, but in such a way that he did actually intend something else contained in the words to be literally taken. It's not that we cast out the literal application. His writings are therefore both literal and allegorical. To understand them in their allegorical sense, notice this language very carefully, brothers and sisters. You have to pay strict attention to their literal significance. You have to. The literal narrative is the form of the knowledge of the truth. The allegorical significance of that form. In other words, Christ just says he's the manna from heaven in John 6. But the details of the manna are actually to be found in Exodus 16. Use the New Testament as a commentary of the old. When we learn the, the nature of Christ, the record says in John 3, as a serpent was put on a pole, Christ himself shall be. Well, the details of the serpent and how that came to back came about are in Numbers chapter 21. So notice what Brother Thomas says. We have to pay strict attention to the literal to get the strict allegorical significance. They're not vague generalizations. And I want to say something in case I forget to say it now. And I think I have it in the slide. And I, I apologize if this does not come off the way that I intended to, brothers and sisters. And it's this. It is very, this started about 10, 15 years ago in the Brotherhood. I heard a lot of phraseology that referred to these things as generalizations and Bible echoes. Now, I am not mocking that phrase. But it isn't really a biblical phrase. They are called shadows and types and signs and symbols and allegories and parables. Don't be apprehensive to use it. By the way, the church has used that phrase a lot. Bible echoes. There's a general inference of a, 
a savior in the, the story of Joseph. It's far beyond that, brothers and sisters. It's more than a general inference. And I'm not saying that that phrase is wrong. I'm just saying, don't be afraid to say exactly what it is. We cannot know Christ as a high priest, either after Aaron or Melchizedek, unless we've done a study in the Old Testament. We cannot know him as the provisional sacrifice of Yahweh unless we've studied the sacrifices, nor the t- Christ. The word was made flesh and it's literally tabernacled among us and God dwelling in among us. We know where the tabernacle is cited for you and I, unless there's been a study of the tabernacle, it's Exodus 25 through the end of Exodus. You can't know what those figures mean. So that's the point of it, brothers and sisters. We are the circumcision, which worship God in spirit and in truth. And you know those phrases as they appear in Philippians and Romans. You have to know what the circumcision is. That's embedded in the Old Testament scripture. Now, I just want to cite a couple of references. Um, and I re- realize a lot of this is always difficult in this format, is that I'm the motor mouth saying all this, and, and there's probably room for discussion. But there are some examples. Here's what Brother Barling said, and I think this is an excellent book, by the way, brothers and sisters, um, Law and Grace by Brother Barling. Such oftentimes is a significant character of Bible history. It is both, he's saying the same thing Brother Thomas said, literal and allegorical at the same time. The notes that we have by Brother um, Phillips, the brother had an influence on me. Being allegorical, it doesn't thereby cease to be literally true. And you know the church has totally messed that up. The churches, if you ask them, and I don't, if you ever talk to someone who goes to whatever Baptist, Methodist church, they actually think the creation is a, eh, it's a story. But then they'll take the book of Revelation and go, oh, no, that's literal. The dragon, and they actually get it mis- mixed up because they're not students of the Bible. Because it's allegorical doesn't mean it ceases to be literally true. Nor because it's literally, literally true doesn't mean it doesn't qualify as allegory. It is properly not pure parable, but enacted parable. It retains its claim. Remember, he's saying the exact same thing that Brother Thomas said. You have to pay strict attention. It retains its claim throughout to faultless accuracy. That's a bold statement. Now, I stand by that statement, but it's a bold one. It is this which gives it its unique importance for its allegorical content you got to digest this for a bit. Precisely because it's eminent, based wholly on the authentic historical facts, the allegory, he says, possesses the same property of truth as the facts themselves. Joseph is a type of Christ. The literal story is true. The way that he is a type of Christ holds the exact same properties of truth as Christ himself. I stand by that. I think that is a bold statement. It's an accurate one. Brother Roberts, whatever you may think of it, there the fact undoubtedly is. It would be a pity to make the mistake of those who stoutly shut their eyes and maintain there are no types and shadows connected either with the history or institutions of Israel under Moses. It is the thinking of which we established our community, brothers and sisters. I stand by that as well. Progressing from the milk to the meat. We understand in our statement of faith, we have it. We believe the right doctrines. We do hold the truths as they are set forth in the Bible. There's no question about that. What Paul says 
is that milk, both in its literal and figurative ap applications, it's a fundamental diet. It's one for newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the, the word. When you advance to meat, it goes on to deeper things. And he says that in Hebrews chapter 5, starting at verse 13. He says, those that use milk are unskillful skillful in the word of righteousness. Strong meat belongs to those that are mature, which is what full age means. Therefore, we have to advance on. And the King James says leaving the principles. It doesn't mean you ignore them. It means you advance from the principles of the doctrine of Christ. We're not talking about baptism or resurrection, the doctrine of laying on hand. We've got to go beyond that. And by the way, remember, this is the epistle to the Hebrews. The Jews who would have known the Old Testament scriptures. So when he talks about Christ being the greater than Aaron, the greater than Moses, the greater, greater than the angels, because the law was given by dispensation of the angels. And he talks about, and this is the, the epistle where he talks about figures and shadows of the truth. It's in Hebrews that he talks about that. Because he's saying, let's advance from the first principles, and now let's understand what the law, prophets, and psalms are talking about, and how Christ is a greater fulfillment of all of those people and their applications. And here's just a quick example of this. According to my time, we've got about 10 minutes. We know that the Abrahamic covenant is predominantly placed into two specific uh, blessings. And that is that he would make of him a great nation, which refers to Israel after the flesh, the Jews as we see them today. And then verse three, in thee will all families of the earth be blessed. Now we know that the great nation refers to the nation of Israel, regardless of persecution they undergo, they will be restored. You've got all those references in front of you. By the way, when Ishmael was about to die, and Hagar said he's about ready to perish. The angel appears and says, he will not die. I will make of him, quotes the Abrahamic covenant in verse two there. I will make of him a great nation. He was the natural offspring spring of the flesh. But when Paul refers to all families of the earth being blessed, both in Romans and in Galatians, he's talking about you and I, Gentiles. So Genesis 2, verse 1, is speaking of the Jews as a nation. And Genesis 12, verse 3, is speaking of Gentiles being grafted into it. But this isn't where the doctrine leaves it. It's not just when you read that and hear the verses to go with it. It's actually an allegory. And again, not an echo, not a vague illusion. It is a very specific allegory through a very deep and elongated period of Israel's history concerning the sons of Abraham. He says, those that desire to be under the law, remember that Abraham had two sons. One was a bondwoman from Egypt. The law is called bondage. It was given to Israel when they came out of Egypt. It came after the Abrahamic. She became a concubine after Sarah was already a wife. He said, then there is a free woman and she had a son, which things are an allegory. These two men and their mothers are two covenants. They're not literally two covenants. They're allegorically two covenants. The one Sinai, where the law of Moses was given. The other, Jerusalem, which is the city of truth, the city of Christ. 
Hagar, he says, is Mount Sinai. Jerusalem, of course, is Sarah, the mother of us all. Now he says, we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. And he that was born after the flesh, Paul calls them as a nation, Israel after the flesh in Corinthians, persecuted him that was after the spirit. Didn't the Jews do the same to Christ? And so it is written, cast out this bondwoman and her son. So it's not just left up to a doctrinal thing. God takes a long piece of history where by inspiration, the apostle Paul tells us it's an allegory. So you now can go back into the Genesis record, and it's quite long dealing with those men, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 from the calling of Abraham, and go through and sift through the allegory associated with it. What about the circumcision? Very, very critical for the Abrahamic seed. Well, you'll note that in Romans chapter 4, chronologically, the Apostle Paul cites biblical history and Abraham. When he says, they say, well, you got to be circumcised just like the Jews. So Paul says, remember this, when Abraham was called and given the promise that in him would all families of the earth be blessed, that he would be a father of a multitude and his name changed to that. And that in him, he would be the father of both the Jews and Gentiles. He wasn't circumcised. Look at the red print at the bottom of the screen. Abraham was called in Genesis chapter 12. The circumcision was not implemented until Genesis 17, of which Ishmael, the seed after the flesh, the son of the bondwoman from Egypt, is circumcised, the first to partake of that. And then Isaac, born by the word of Yahweh. At the time that I've spoken, the word that I've spoken unto you, you shall bear forth the son. So he says, all of this was prophesied beforehand in the literal chronological events of the circumcision of Abraham. He yet being circumcised is when he was called that he might be the father of all them that believe, not just those that are circumcised. He was not yet circumcised for the promise that he should be heir to the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith for all the seed, because Abraham is the father of us all. So now we look at little details of doctrinal first principles, and now we've advanced it, uh, brothers and sisters, to something far beyond that. And Brother Thomas picks up on this in Elpis Israel, written in 1848 where he says this fragment of Abraham's history is a signification beyond what appears. The two women, two sons, or two covenants, two seeds, two classes of people, Purse Mansfield and the expositor says, it is the allegory of Abraham's life. You follow it chronologically, you'll find in Genesis 21, the natural seed is literally cast out until she sees the Abrahamic well. Isaac is sacrificed by the father then you have the death of Sarah, which we've just been told she represents Jerusalem. She dies, AD 70. Then Isaac calls for his bride outside the land, and he gets that bride, and she's brought back unto him, and she comes into his tent. 
Then chapter 25, more concubines are brought to Abraham, and the truth now goes into many nations. A lot of those concubines and those sons become what we know as Gentile nations. So we have four minutes according to my Texas time. Um, let me see if we can get, just go to one concluding screen. Sorry, it's taking longer than I thought. So as a matter of first principle, Mill, we, we know this. This is one last reference. We know that Christ was a partaker of our nature. It's all throughout our statement of faith. We totally reject rightly that he had anything to do with the Trinity, that he was God himself, that he was very God. But we do acknowledge that he was exalted by God from death and that God set him on his right hand and he gave him all authority and the power <clears throat> after he was put to death by the Jews for no sin that he did. And those are all the references that cite that. These are all in our statement of faith. We know that as a matter of doctrine. We believe that Christ shared our nature. He is not a trinity. He does not have co-equal power with God. But he was exalted by God to have all power. We'll let this be our last overhead. Look how often this doctrine appears, brothers and sisters. How consistent this principle is just on a forest view, before you even get into the trees and the verse-by-verse -verse study of this. Note the variation of the circumstances, yet consistently there's a man brought from a figurative death who's been unjustly accused, then ultimately vindicated, and when he's vindicated, the supreme power gives him all authority. It happens in Joseph when he is raised from prison by one that is higher in power. Then he changes his garments. He's given immortality. It literally says that. Then he appears before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I found no one wiser. And he gives him all authority to control the land. There's still one higher in power. But Joseph's been exalted from prison. Mordecai. The purpose of, of the evil Haman was to hang him upon a tree until one night the king could not sleep and he's going to be hanged the very next day. And what happens? His name is drawn up from the Chronicles, the book of the Kings, and he hasn't been rewarded yet. And the king exalts him and gives him ring, his ring and puts him over power of all the land. Daniel. As Psalm 22 says, save me from the lion's mouth. Daniel's put into the den of lions. And all night, the power of the Medo-Persian Empire cannot sleep. His sleep goes from him until he runs and he cries first thing in the morning, just like when Christ was resurrected. And he's lifted up from the lion's den and given the supreme position. Isaac, sacrificed by the father three days journey. Same thing with Joseph. The butler and the baker, the bread and wine, have dreams. After three days, certain things are going to happen to them. Three days journey, he sacrificed. Ultimately, what happens? All things that belong to the father were given to the hand of Isaac. Nehemiah. He's the king's cupbearer. Says that in Nehemiah chapter 1. He goes in to inspect the city. None of his brethren know what he's doing, the purpose of his first advent. And he's given all the authority by the king and the power to do it. In fact, they have to search back the records to make sure he had the authority to do that.
All of those are not echoes, brothers and sisters. Those are types and allegories and sustained parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Brother Thomas says that the Christ doctrine and Brother Barling says that it's found in the details of the Old Testament, and Brother John Carter says it over and over again, you possibly can't understand New Testament scripture without going back to the types and allegories of the Old Testament. This is what they mean by this. And now I had the fortune to learn how to reason out of the scriptures after this matter. So, sorry, I totally lied, Brother Dan. This is one last reference. The doctrine of the, the atonement, very important. And brethren, don't wince at this. It's always been controversial in the brotherhood, the subject matter of the atonement. Nothing will clarify that subject more than the types and shadows of the law. Nothing. That's why the law of Moses was, was put together. Don't shy away from it. So in a discussion on the atonement specifically, all those references we cited in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, Hebrews chapter uh, 2, he in all points was tempted like unto us. He was a partaker of flesh and blood. What the law could not do, Christ did in that he condemned sin in the flesh. That's not what Brother Roberts quotes. This is what he says to finalize points on the atonement. Question and answer number 73. Paul says the substance of the law or things foreshadowed in it were to be found in Christ. This being so, can your theory furnish the antitype for the high priest offering for himself? If your theory holds water and we know those things are types, can your theory provide that? Can your theory furnish the antitype to the scarlet that was part of the composition of the white veil? That is to say, his flesh. And it's called the veil of his flesh. Can your theory furnish the antitype to the uncleanness in parting the bodies of those beasts burnt without the camp that are a type of Christ? If you attempt to answer, don't content yourself with just yes or no, so to speak. But show us where these things are typical of Christ and where they have their counterpart in a theory which teaches what you are proclaiming. That's how important type and antitype are. And again, brothers and sisters, I'll conclude by how, by how I started. And that is, please don't read the title of these classes, Reasoning Out of the Scriptures. Like, well, I think I found some way of reasoning that you don't quite understand. Therefore, I'm going to teach you. Nothing can be further from the truth. I came out of the world, and I just am convinced the way to understand the truth is to go back to where we had our foundations and how we learned to reason out of the scriptures by the many brethren that we cited tonight. Thank you.